Will you guys turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1? That's the ninth book in your Bible, just right after Ruth. Uh, David calling me verbose reminded me of something, wordy and verbose. Uh, we, David and I spent the last week at our General Assembly for our denomination, which is basically like our denomination's Congress. And so what happens is you have sessions and people, you got a moderator up on the stage and you got a clerk and you got all these important parliamentarians standing up or sitting up on stage. And we debate different pieces of business that are relevant to the denomination as a whole. And so there's microphones all over this gigantic room of 2,000 people. And if you want to hear wordy and verbose people, put 2,000 ministers together that already love to hear themselves talk and want their colleagues to hear them talk too. Well, everybody gets like, say, 10 minutes. You have t- you're timed. You get 10 minutes to talk. And 10 minutes, when you're just sharing your opinion, that's a long time to listen to somebody grandstand and hold for. 10 minutes is a while. Um, and at the end of 10 minutes, some of these brothers have the audacity to ask for extensions. Well, technology has caught up even with the Presbyterian Church in America. And they hand every single pastor at the beginning of the week a remote, which is your, like, voter. It's a one for yes, two for no kind of deal. And so at the end of ten minutes, the moderator will say, you want an extension? Let's ask the audience. (laughs) And you get some no's. There, I mean, we literally saw guys get a thousand no's. David said, have you ever seen something where you get more immediate feedback of something you've just done? But that crestfallen people walking back to their seat all over the place. I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 1, 1 Samuel 1, 21 through 28, and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll get going. This is God's word. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, let me be the first to say when we sang this song, fruitful if in Christ abiding, steadfast through the Spirit's guiding, that that has definitely not been entirely true of me. And so, like David said, I want to confess my sin to you this morning, that I haven't been those things. 
But please, don't let that be a distraction to your word. Will you open all of our hearts to hear your word and be transformed? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you guys were here last week, you remember where we're at. So we're in 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel chapter 1 begins a story. And the main character of the story, at least in the first chapter of this book, is a woman named Hannah and her husband named Elkanah. Hannah's really the main character here. And we read and heard last week about bitter, bitter suffering that Hannah experienced. She suffered bitterly because she was infertile. She was a barren woman. She was deeply, deeply loved by her husband, but she was the barren wife of her husband. And so her husband, because Hannah was barren, marries another woman named Peninnah. And Peninnah isn't. She's not barren at all. She has many children and she jests and jokes and jabs and heckles Hannah. And so Hannah not only is infertile, but now she's got this great competitor, another wife that she has to live with and be mocked by all the time, even as this woman is having the desires of her heart fulfilled by having many children. But we also heard about Hannah's prayer life and her devotion, that she went to the temple and she prayed eagerly to the Lord and told the Lord of her pain and how much it hurt that she couldn't have a child. And we heard Eli's sort of his, his promise over Hannah, his vow to Hannah that God would, in fact, give her a child. And then in 20 verses... We see the hand of the Lord break in and open the doors of a closed womb and give Hannah her child. We witness a great kind of biblical reversal of fortune. And so when those 20 verses are up and we've seen Hannah suffer and we've heard her get made fun of by Peninnah and then we see God do the miraculous and change things. Like David said, maybe after 20 years of childlessness, we want the story to end there. But it's just first same, it's not even all of first, the first chapter. But we want the story to end there. Because we love reversals of fortune like as a people. I mean, we'd love to see somebody taken from the depths and get raised to a height. And we want the story to end there. But it's just the first chapter of 1 Samuel. And so Hannah's pain actually doesn't diminish that much with the end of her labor. Hannah makes a promise to God when she goes into the temple. And you read it, you know, when you read this promise in 1 Samuel 1, it seems like a last effort kind of dashed off. You know what I mean? Like Like what we would call a foxhole prayer. She's in a fix. She's in a bad spot. She can't have children. And she says, God, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. If you just give me a child, I, I'll do anything. In fact, I'll give, if you give me this child, I'll give him to you. You can have him back. You can have him. I'm not even going to ask for him. You can have him back. And we usually laugh at those kind of prayers. Because they are. We feel like they're foxhole prayers and they feel sort of mercenary. And all of us have made them at different points in our life, you know. We need the narrow miss on the highway and we say, thanks for that, Lord, you know. I give you my whole life or whatever. 
And our efforts in responding and fulfilling those vows are usually pretty meager. But God answers Hannah's prayer. And He enforces the full weight of the vow. And forces her into a situation that who knows if she really thought God was going to give her the child or wasn't. But next thing you know, Hannah's on her way back to Shiloh again with child in tow. And she's not coming back home with that child. She's got to leave him there. What do you learn? How, what do you learn from a passage like this? How do you learn from stories? Does that question make sense to you? I know that we were in... First and Second Timothy, and then in Titus, which are letters of Paul, and they give you basic propositions about the gospel. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. You read that and you say, I know what that means. I mean, I know I don't maybe believe it perfectly, but I get the general idea of what it wants out of me. It wants me to believe these things. Live a life of godliness. Do that. You see, we read that over and over again in First and Second Timothy and Titus. And you can take stock of what it means to live a godly life, and you can say, I more or less know what this is asking of me. But the Bible's chocked full of narratives. It's chocked full of stories. And how do you take a story and get any kind of propositional content from it that you can go out and live with? How do stories work? I'm not going to answer that today, uh, but that's what they, they do that somehow. And so when you preach a sermon or when you hear a sermon, somehow you've got to be asking that question all the time. In what way does this motivate me and is what, in what way does this transform me? Well, one of the things I think, we'll just say two things about this passage this morning. Um, but one of the things that you see here that we're going to see over and over again in this book is what I mentioned earlier, and that is this great reversal of fortune. This story is real simple, right? It begins with a barren woman that can't have a child, and it ends with a woman that is quite fertile. The barrenness is the thing that deeply distressed her. The children is what would make her happy, That all gets reversed right in the middle of our passage. And so we see this great reversal of fortune. That theme that happens to to Hannah is going to run through the whole of this book. Now in the very next chapter, what I think we'll look at next week is a song that Hannah sings in praise to God. After all of this has happened, Hannah responds by singing. And she waxes eloquent as she filters this idea of the reversal of her fortune through her own poetic imagination. And she says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble will bind on strength. Over and over again, we're going to see in this book how God's presence disrupts worldly orders in favor of the humble and the weak. Now that's clear in this passage, but it's also a biblical theme as well, right? We see it throughout the whole Bible. We see the weak prioritized by God over the strong. If you've read very little of the Bible, that's probably something that you've seen. You don't have to turn too many pages before you see that God wants to destroy the proud and wants to exalt the weak. But how does it work? I mean, how does that work with Hannah? 
it doesn't, it doesn't seem to work in the way that we might naturally think it should work in a story. And it definitely seems probably a lot like your life. I mean, does God take people from the metaphorical pit and just transport them immediately to glory and honor and riches? Has that happened to anybody in this room? Do you even really see that in the Bible? Is this like Mark Twain, the prince and the pauper? No, you never see that. The story's always much more complicated than that. God does move in favor of the weak, and God does bind up the brokenhearted. But it's never a mere, it's not a real simple move. We don't live our whole lives feeling like entirely blessed or entirely cursed by God, always feeling the full weight of either one of those things. Like for I think about myself. There's obviously moments in my life that feel really unfortunate, but I still, I guess, believe generally that God loves me very much. And that seems to be the way that these reversals of fortune happen. They happen, but they don't happen in one quick, direct move. And so I wonder if the example of Hannah isn't remarkably poignant for each of our lives, even if her story seems grand in comparison to the mundane things that we experience in our lives. Can we say with Hannah that we feel the sense of being poised between a present suffering and the hope that God's Word gives us? I mean, can we say that? Like David said last week, doesn't that feel... Doesn't that make sense to you? Doesn't that feel like something you've felt before? I feel poised between trusting God's word, but feeling deeply that my own position isn't exactly where that needs to be. Now, Hannah's story is amazing. Because different from you, probably definitely different from me, I assure you, Hannah chooses not to hoard this promise that God has given her but exhibits one of the most radical acts of generosity we see in the Bible, and that sort of prolongs her suffering. And I just I want to know what that says. What does that do? If you camp out and think about that just for a while, God finally gives her what she asked for, but then He takes it right away. What does that mean? And how do you leave a moment like that and see what we're going to see next week that Hannah's willing to just exult in song immediately after that. Well, I think it means that Hannah is willing to do something that most of us aren't. And maybe it, in the best moments of our life we do it. Many times we don't. But she's just willing to see what this small, to see what this gift, what this small moment in her life could mean in the greater story of God's work. And isn't that one of the secrets of basic Christian contentment, that you're willing to see what this moment, what this instance, what this confusing, I'm willing to look past this confusing moment where God is asking something from me that I didn't really expect Him to ask from me, and I'm willing to see what that looks like in the greater story of God's work. Now, the text seems to suggest that when Hannah leaves, when she's made the promise, okay, but when it's time to go, when Elkanah comes up at the very in like verses 21 through 24 of our passage, he shows up and he says, let's go. It's time to go to the temple. Let's go and let's take Samuel with us. 
Hannah sort of drags her feet a little bit. And she says, ah, let's wait until he's weaned and then I'll go up. And Elkanah responds, okay, but may the Lord establish what's good to him. Now, I'm sure Eli appreciated the fact that Hannah didn't drop an unweaned child at his doorstep and expect him to fend for that child for the next four or five years. But every one of us would. Every one of us would hesitate and wait and say, I want to give this, I do want to fulfill my promise to you, Lord, but I'm just not ready to do it yet. Now, don't make any mistake about what she's doing. This isn't like putting Samuel into some top-notch boarding school. You know, she's not taking her son and putting him into a great situation. I remember this story from my childhood. My mother was, uh, thought she was infertile. She had me, and then after me, she couldn't have any more children. And so my parents adopted my younger brother when I was four years old, and they named him Samuel after this story. And so this story became like a thing in my family that I heard all the time. And I just assumed when Hannah was dropping Samuel off at the temple, it was like putting him in an Ivy League prep school. And this was like overall a better situation for Samuel than living with Hannah and Elkanah. But that's not the case at all because Eli turns out to be sort of a joke of a high priest in 1 Samuel. And if you read chapter 2, his sons have some of the simplest denunciations of human beings you read in the Bible. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. This is not like sending your kids to live with the CPC staff, which I'm sure would be very edifying for your children and a wonderful thing. This is like sending your son to live with the mob. This is a bad thing. Now, Hannah may not fully understand the weight of the destruction that Eli's temple is putting on the people of Israel, but still, you got to think that she's not entirely sure that these guys are where she wants her son to be. So what is God doing? Why would He give Hannah this child and take her, take him away and send him to live with wretched people that don't know the Lord at all? Well, God works His mysterious will And he reverses fortunes, and he grinds down the pride of the mighty, and he exalts the lowly. But he's always doing more in doing that than just switching people's places. This isn't a simple matter of taking a guy from the bottom and putting that guy on the top as if God was simply in the business of like arranging flowers. I was trying to think of a good illustration. It's not mechanical in that way. If God is just mechanically moving people from the bottom to the top, that doesn't create change at all. Watch any ESPN documentary where this kind of thing happens. And the turmoil from somebody going from the bottom to the top is just as difficult as spending years on the bottom. God's doing something way more creative than that. He's doing it in a way that takes a while, but that changes people when He does it. Sure, He reversed Hannah's fortunes, but then he took, his, he took her child from her. God bracketed out. He precluded all of the immediate benefits that would have come from her having a son. He was going to exalt her. We know that he did from reading the rest of the story. We know that God was good to Hannah. And we trust that God will be good to us. And we trust that one day our name will be honored and blessed more 
than we can ever imagine. The weight of glory that's coming is worth the temporary afflictions that we feel in this life. Paul said, Hannah didn't know the place she was leaving her boy, but she trusted God and look what God wrought. Her son grew, as we'll see, and became a prophet and a leader of Israel. God reverses our fortunes sometimes in ways we'll never see or know, but they always fit squarely into the perfect story that he's telling. What are some personal questions that you can ask yourself? If you're in a small group, in one of our small groups, and you wonder how exactly does a story work, how does this change me, what does this do? Well, ask yourself something like this. How has God asked me to be humble and then rewarded me only by asking me to humble myself more? Why is, what is God requiring of you in this specific moment that you're dragging your feet about? Stories can work that way. As you see the experience of the main character related to your own life, they can help you ask questions that that character is asking that you haven't been eager to ask yourself at all. Well, in closing, I think one of the most peculiar, the strangest thing to me when I read this this week was what happens in this passage right after Hannah weans Samuel. Look in verse 24. And when she weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. When they go to Shiloh, they bring their son, the most beloved thing that this woman has in the entire world. She's giving back to God. It hadn't been that long. She hadn't gotten to have him very long. She asked for him. She wept. She suffered bitterly. And God finally changed that. And He gave her a son. And then Hannah's going to do the remarkable. She's going to follow her vow. She's going to give him back to the Lord. She's going to do what she said she was going to do. She's giving God the most precious thing in her life. Why does she have to take a three-year-old bull, a skin of wine, and a lot of flour? Why do you, this is the most amazing offering you could ever give the Lord. Why do you got to take a bull too? Why should she have to do that? I think it's because Hannah and Elkanah knew that even this great sacrifice would never be enough. Before a holy God, even something this magnificent, even willingness this strong, even submission to the will of the Lord, this resolved, wasn't going to atone or cleanse anything. They're still taking a sinful son from a sinful family and leaving him at a temple full of sinful people. The sins had to be atoned for somehow. So Hannah takes her boy to the temple, but she knows that's not enough. However we praise Hannah's offering of Samuel, she knew that even her best motives required the cleaning of her heart through atoning blood as she offered all that she had to the Lord. What an unbelievable model of offering. That Hannah would do this thing and yet never presume that she could give God something, she could give to God something without acknowledging His love and His providence first. This primitive woman, 
from thousands and thousands of years ago, clearly experiencing a special revelation, a special favor with God, never presumes her sins are no longer a factor when she engages with the Most High. That's amazing. And so Hannah prepares, and she prepares rightly, trusting that even though the the tabernacle at this time may have had serious leadership issues, God would have His special way, and He would forgive the sins of her family and work all things together for the good of her son. Generosity in Hannah, the spirit, this thing that's going on with Hannah here, is an act. I mean, she's doing the miraculous, giving her son to the Lord. But it really is a spirit that's inside her. I mean, it's like a disposition. Clearly, this woman has a disposition towards generosity. And that's true of the most generous people in the world. They become preoccupied with giving. But they're more than that, preoccupied with the great gift that God has already given them. And that makes them wildly creative when it comes to generosity. Hannah's generosity splayed out in a broad array of gifts all over the place. Not only does she give God what she prizes most, but she doubles down and never presumes that her gifts could put God in her debt. I think God gives us the story of Hannah to inspire our hope and to direct us towards a gospel character, even when that hope is deferred. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this story, and we thank you for this wonderful model of generosity, of trust in only your pardon, of not trusting in her own works or her ability to be obedient enough to please you, but a willingness to go to you, still needy. Just like we sang, she was a sinner that was coming to your tabernacle poor and needy, and she was happy to do so. Will you transform us this morning? Fill us with your spirit and grant to us this hope. In your name we pray. Amen.